Hi, I'm Winnie Da Silva. As a leadership strategist and executive coach, I've had the privilege of working with leaders from companies of all sizes and industries for over 20 years. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations. We're geared up to go using a model that was exactly the same upon which we faced the pilot trial. But COVID happened and we realized that many women who might have been comfortable going to a hospital, a major medical center, a clinic, uh, or to participate in research, were staying home. So that research ground to a halt. So we were faced with a, an important decision that was in part constrained because of my commitment to good research, but we're a startup, which means our finances are finite and we have goals we must produce to keep the company going. I was in the operating room with a senior surgeon and he was really trying hard to make me feel bad <laughs> about my oh, skills no. as I was wow. uh, sewing closed an incision. And I wanted to apologize so many times during that uh, surgery when he was making me feel bad, but I decided that I was only going to apologize if I had done something wrong. I am excited to introduce to you my next guest who has dedicated her entire career to women's health. After a 15-year career in academic medicine, she is currently the chief medical officer at Renovia Inc., a digital health startup located in the Boston area. She is also a renowned doctor in the emerging field of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. As a woman, a doctor, and now in the executive suite of a startup, she brings a unique perspective on leadership and the ways in which she's overcome adversity. And I'm really excited for her to share her insightful stories. Samantha Pulliam, thank you for being on my show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And it's okay if I call you Mandy. Please do. Okay. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about Renovia, what they do and who they help, and the role you play as their CMO or chief medical officer? Sure. So Renovia is a digital therapeutics company. Uh, it's a medical device company. The devices we make have a digital uh, aspect. And in our case, there's a device and a phone app. We make primarily devices that would treat female urinary incontinence, things that would be used by women at home to help strengthen the pelvic floor muscles and prevent incontinence. A lot of what I do is wrapped up in two different ways. One is I have a lot to do with the strategy uh, and the decisions that are made about um, which products to develop, how to develop them, and how to choose among them, uh, and what order to put them in. And then the other is I head up and oversee the research that's behind them. One of the big passions for me is that in a lot of um, women's health, particularly in the areas of things like urinary incontinence, there are lots of, I call them thingies out there that may help treat incontinence, but there's not a lot of data behind them. What I'm committed to for the good of women is to establish the value of our devices in the treatment of incontinence by creating and carrying out um, well-designed clinical trials that are designed to answer the questions about whether they work. I think for a long time, women have been given things that might work, and I want to show that they work so that we can provide good care for women. Very good. I imagine in the medical uh, industry, women don't get a lot of attention when it comes to their own particular challenges and issues in terms of health. And it sounds like what you're doing around the research and care and strategy around women's health, is that unusual in this industry? How does it compare to what else is going on in this field? So it's a passion of mine. And I think there are a number of examples of poor care for women, uh, particularly in this area where I specialize that have been evident in the last 
five or 10 years, if you want to do some interesting reading, you could look back over the MeSH debacle. There's a surgery uh, that's commonly used to treat women for urinary incontinence. It's, uh, in my opinion, anyway, a very safe surgery, but it's been uh, the subject of many class action lawsuits. And if you look back over most of the issues, a lot of it has been poor research and and perhaps poor training of physicians in, in using the devices. So Overall, it's been an area that has not done women any favors, even though I think it might have been intended to. I imagine being a CMO is quite different than being uh, a doctor day to day. Tell us a little bit about the transition that you had to make personally in your career from being a doctor and doing the things you were as a doctor to the CMO role in a startup. I think a lot of people think that being a doctor is taking care of individual patients and ensuring that they have good outcomes or as good as can be had outcomes for whatever their problem is. And that part of doctoring is definitely part of it and something that I really loved doing and still do. I still do a small clinical practice, but I grew disillusioned um, with medicine and I was part of academic medicine because the way that medicine is going now means that there's at least as much attention paid to billing and economics and how many patients you can see in a day or in a 15-minute period. And I just felt like I wasn't giving very good care uh, to women. And at the same time, the system I was involved in, I wasn't really able to influence that because I was in the position of providing clinical care. Part of what appealed to me about um, being a chief medical officer was that I uh, had the opportunity really to help um, thousands, maybe millions uh, of women if we were successful. Uh, and I really valued that as an opportunity to have an impact in a way that my one-off clinical care couldn't do. And it's not that clinical care is not important. It's critically mm-hmm. important and, and really it deserves uh, much more attention uh, than it's getting and much more care to the craft. But I felt that this was one way I could give back even more and, and contribute in a larger way. So the reach and scale of impact that you could have was an attraction to joining this company and and being able to play this role. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of my skill sets in terms of my organizational skills and and just my ability to understand perhaps um, what ought to happen next, what should come next in Mm -hmm. terms of planning, um, those are uh, used in a much better way in my current role than they might have been in my clinical efforts. I would add to that, just because I've known you for so long, is your communication skills, your ability to communicate and explain things in a way that people can hear and understand them and probably bridge, I imagine, several different areas in the business that you're in, like sales, marketing, uh, strategy, how it affects people, and being able to communicate across all those stakeholders. Absolutely. And in fact, I have to say that particular challenge was one of the largest that I confronted when I took this job. I think when you work in clinical medicine, you're surrounded by other people who are focused on clinical medicine. So nurses, medical assistants, other colleagues, and and other physicians and other specialties, and they all speak the same language generally that you speak. But when you are in industry, the medical language is not the main language. And so I felt like when I started this job, I spent the first six to eight months really learning a whole new set of acronyms, a whole new set of lingo, and really had to hone my my skills in terms of of teaching and explaining and and communicating so that I could communicate with people in completely different disciplines than my own. It was a very Very educational process. (laughs) Let's go on to talking a little bit about your most difficult leadership challenge that you've faced recently. What's been challenging for you as a leader? 
So one of my responsibilities within my company is to lead the way in terms of the clinical research that we do. As I mentioned before, I'm really dedicated to producing good research in support of the offerings that we have uh, for women who have urinary incontinence. And so designing the clinical studies and then working to implement them is a big part of what I do. One of the sort of pinnacles, if you will, of research is a randomized controlled trial. That's when you compare one intervention to another intervention and the people who participate in the trial are assigned randomly to one or the other. So they don't get to choose. And the idea is that balances out uh, the people who are assigned. So you're really getting a true idea of what you're testing one thing against another. So when COVID came along, we had been working on a a randomized controlled trial uh, that would compare the use of our device to pelvic floor muscle exercises uh, at home on your own. And we'd done a pilot trial previously and we're geared up to go using a model that was exactly the same as the model upon which we based the pilot trial. But COVID happened and we realized that many women who might have been comfortable going to a hospital, a major medical center, a clinic uh, to receive care or to participate in research for urinary incontinence were staying home. Put simply, urinary incontinence isn't life-threatening, and so there's really no reason to pursue care for it unless there's something dire going on. So that sort of research sort of ground to a halt. And lots of research institutions and ethics boards and all sorts of things were focusing solely on COVID during this time. So we were faced with an important decision within the company that was in part uh, constrained because of my commitment to good research, but we had other constraints. Mm -hmm. We're a startup, which means our finances are finite. And we have goals that we must produce to keep the company going. And one of those was the result of a clinical trial. So I had to think about how I was going to do this. If none of the past work that we had set up would allow us to do a clinical trial, the challenge was clear. How were we going to do this without running out of money, without falling so far behind in our goals and objectives that the the data would be meaningless? This required a, a couple of major efforts. One was a lot of thinking outside the box. What could we do Mm -hmm. that didn't require someone to go into a major medical center? How could we use a trial that we had modeled previously using an office visit with a physical examination and so forth? How could we make that into something that didn't require any of that? So thinking outside the box was the first step. And then the second thing that I did there was I partnered with um, some of my academic colleagues who were um, involved in the prior research and who could help me think outside the box. These are, are mostly women who have uh, had much more experience in research than I have on the execution side, if you will, performing these mm-hmm. research uh, objectives in, in academic medical centers. And so I worked with them to think outside the box. We did some literature reviews, looking at the medical literature, seeing what had been done before. And together then, in a collaborative effort, we designed uh, a clinical trial that required no attendance at a doctor's office, essentially a fully digital, fully remote randomized controlled trial. There are a couple of examples of how this has been done in the past. Some have been done with things that could be used, downloaded, but not a device. And there were some that failed, that tried to do it and and didn't succeed for a couple of different reasons. And so we took all of that learning from those past things. We put it through our own lens of what we needed to learn from the trial, and we developed an all-remote clinical trial, which I'm happy to say actually has just launched last week. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's a major thing. there were two challenges there. One was, is this a priority for hospitals and for women and access to women who want to be safe and 
since it's not life threatening, they're going to want to stay home and not be in a hospital setting. But then on top of that, it being a startup, resources being finite, and then the research integrity, you needed to keep that intact. It sounds like talking with colleagues and, and brainstorming with them, you're talking about it now as if it's so obvious and so seamless. It seems like an almost impossible challenge. How do you have them be involved in a clinical trial, but do it digitally? How, yeah. how did this come about? So we looked through all of the they call them inclusion exclusion criteria, but the things that would allow someone to qualify for the study. And we asked the question, which of these cannot be accomplished remotely? So we ended up with two or three things from the study that could not be accomplished remotely. And the next thing we asked was, how important are they? <laughs> and once we were able to eliminate the ones that weren't that critical, we then sought, again, through the literature and through other experts, to identify ways that we could gather the same information asking questions uh, instead of doing a physical examination. And what we found was that in the history of studying urinary incontinence, there were several questions uh, that exist in surveys that have been evaluated and found to be reliable and valid. Uh, so in that way, we were able to uh, eliminate the need for a physical exam. Wow, that's amazing. So this is certainly a business challenge. Tell us a little bit about how this was a leadership challenge for you. How did the leadership challenge aspect of this show up in the business challenge you were faced with? In a couple of ways. When I think about it in terms of the needs for the business, there was an enormous pressure on me really to figure out what we could do, particularly since at this point in the development of our company, the research outcomes are, are some of the most important points of information that you can produce to allow the company to go forward. Every company that sort of develops from a startup goes through multiple rounds of fundraising and you need to be able to produce information in order to have someone continue to invest. And so mm -hmm. if we didn't produce that information, the data from a study, we would have nothing with which to fundraise and we needed more funds. There was a lot of pressure. And so part of it was in a way forcing myself to think outside the box. My choices mm -hmm. were think differently or don't do it at all. And, and if we didn't do it at all, that would be the end of the company. That was a lot of pressure. That really forced me to draw the people around me, uh, the advisors that I had, both within and outside of the company, to begin to explore. And it's one thing to explore this sort of thing with someone who doesn't have a horse in the race, someone who mm -hmm. could think with you easily and, and just troubleshoot and blue sky the ideas and come up with things. And so I did some of that. But then once I had a concept of what I wanted to do, I also knew that I needed to have the buy-in of the academic partners, the research partners that I was working with. And that was difficult in the sense that there are certain traditional ways that research is done. And so asking someone else to think outside the box took a little work, not because I needed to persuade anyone, but because I really needed to identify people who were willing to take those risks with me. A lot of what I did was a lot of talking. And thankfully, during COVID, many clinicians uh, who are providing care for women with urinary incontinence didn't have a whole lot going on. So there was some availability some for time. conversation. <laughs> and that was great for me. Yeah. And I was very grateful that so many people were willing to take time and, and talk with me. So that was really helpful. Huh. And I think if I could say there was one thing that helped to pull this all together, it was really the input of, of those outside advisors, both those who were not participating in the trial, who just wanted to give their input and who were curious, and then those who were participating in the trial who were willing to put their sort of name on the line uh, to do this. Both sets of clinicians and researchers were really critical to the development. So seeking out that advice, I think, was really 
a critical part of doing this. And then I had to bring it back around to the board and, and to the others who needed to be convinced internally. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Transformative Leadership Conversations, and I'm your host, Winnie De Silva. Let's get back now to our conversation with Mandy Pulliam, the Chief Medical Officer of Renovia.com. Looking back over your life and your career, are there learning moments or lessons that have continued to help you in times of challenge or maybe even helped you during this challenge that you've just described? Hmm. There are a few stories I could tell, <laughs> but two are coming to mind. The first is I was a resident, a trainee, and if you talk to very many doctors, you'll learn that a lot of their stories come from this very intense time uh, in their mm -hmm. uh, course towards becoming uh, a physician. But I was in my last year of my obstetrics and gynecology training, and I was assigned to be a what's called an administrative chief resident. That means that I and a colleague actually oversaw the 44 trainees that were in our program, and we made the schedule, and we were the liaison between the, this group and the administration. And mm -hmm. The physician who was leading that group was having some personal issues, I think is, is, is probably how it is looking back. But we did not have a good relationship with her, and, and it was a very threatening sort of experience. And mm. in the end, the thing that I carried away from that was that I needed to, number one, uh, have colleagues that I trust and work to develop those relationships. And my co-administrative resident was someone I trusted implicitly. And then the second thing was that I didn't necessarily need to take what tradition or hierarchy said as the bottom line. I needed to think hmm. independently. I needed hmm. to develop my own theories about things uh, and really work to understand from within myself, as well as taking in all the information and things I was told. So that's opportunity where I knew uh, that there was something wrong <laughs> and I, I had to figure out how to think about it on my own has stuck with me as a learning experience that is like no other. <laughs> I think the yeah. things that you learn as a trial by fire are very valuable. Yeah, for sure. It, I, I love that story because in some ways that story is the root of what leadership is, right? Being able to step back, assess for yourself to say what's going on here and making some decisions and having to think on your own as to what the situation is and what you should do without feeling like you just have to do what everyone else tells you to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And the medicine is a very hierarchical uh, sort of environment. And we respected those senior to us almost without question. And this was a real deviation from normal. <laughs> oh. and, and in that way, it was really a good learning experience. Wow. And you had another story too? Yeah. So one other, and, yeah. and oddly, and maybe not oddly, this also comes from my residency okay. experience, my training experience. But it's a much longer story to tell you why I had the opportunity to participate in my training at multiple institutions, uh, multiple residency programs. <laughs> um, but the bottom line was that about every uh -huh. year or two, I was new someplace. Right. Uh, and it's, a, it's an interesting experience to be new. And it's not something that comes naturally to me to be new in an environment. I, I pretty much hate it. And I think maybe most people do. But over that time of that experience, I, I learned what I needed to do well at being new, <laughs> um, yeah. what I needed to know, who I needed to know, how I needed to incorporate myself into a system. And that learning has stayed with me. When you're new at a job, when you're new in an environment, or even with a task or an assignment, I think figuring out how to organize it and make it your own is a very challenging process. And a lot of times, I think people spend 
their outward facing time saying where I came from, we did it this way, <laughs> which mm-hmm. in and yeah. of itself may not be the right way forward, <laughs> as opposed to using that as a personal internal reference and thinking about uh, comparing, contrasting and adapting to the new situation you might find yourself in. Um, Interesting. There's some overlap there. You being in new situations several years in a row and having to figure that out, as well as thinking about yourself being in a situation where you have to think for yourself. That must have crossed over in your career as you had to go through that and think about that in terms of who you thought you wanted to be in any particular situation as a leader. Yes. Yeah. And, And I think it's also made me really internally sensitive, if you will, to how I'm feeling about the situation around me. Is there something going well here? Is there something not going well here? What's, what is wrong? Um, what's the problem? Is it me? Is it not me? And, yeah. and being able to differentiate between those two things has been really invaluable. Hmm. And, and I think women uh, may have a harder time with this, but it's easy to continuously be apologizing for things that don't go right. <laughs> uh, yes. and, and it is really helpful to have a, an internal barometer to help you understand, was I in the wrong here or was this something else besides me? Um, Not necessarily looking for things to blame, but not taking responsibility for things that aren't your fault. Um, Great point. Where is it me? Where is it not me? Like you said, not that it's about blame. My youngest daughter, lately I've noticed that she keeps saying, I'm sorry for everything. Maybe she got that from me, but (laughs) I'm I'm thinking about that as a woman, uh, future forward. That's not what I want her default comment to be is I'm sorry. It's that whole critical um, thinking internal barometer that you're describing that is really important to develop as a girl and as a woman uh, and as a emerging leader to know the difference and to understand where is my contribution? Where is it someone else's contribution? But then where can I still help? I think medicine in general, uh, I used to joke Um, that it was the carrot before the donkey for the rest of your life. (laughs) There's always some way in which you can push yourself further, achieve more, do more, be more, all of those things. And so much of it is derived from the innate desire to please people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's not a bad desire, but if it is the sole thing that gives you your sense of worth or your sense of success, then you're really at risk. Uh, And I think figuring out how to develop the internal barometers that say, yes, I did a good job. No, I didn't do a good job. Yes, this situation went well. No, it didn't. Those sorts of personal internal assessment tools are are worth taking the time to develop. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of, when you think about yourself and your career and how you're developing as a leader going forward, what are the things that you want to do to become a better leader? What are the things that you're thinking about um, and reflecting on in your career right now? I guess there are two. One is probably something that most people need to do, which is to continuously work to refine a vision of what I want to do. And some of that is the sum of your experiences. As I look back, I've done now in my career two very different things. I've done academic medicine and teaching and all of the things that included. And now I'll be moving into my fourth year as the chief medical officer for this company. Neither one of those, I think, are where I'll ultimately end up. Uh, And I'm not sure where it will be, but I'm continuously refining what is important to me? What are the things that I care about enough to take me in my next direction? I guess that's, again, a, an internal development thing. The other thing, and this is very personal for me, although I don't think unique, is that I am an introvert. And I'll say that in business and in life mm-hmm. and in many of the places I think I might want to be or go, 
it requires a little more of an extroversion than I am generally able to cultivate. <laughs> so what's my goal there? I don't think I can make myself into an extrovert, but I can seek to perhaps accommodate my skill set <laughs> in a way that will allow me to pursue goals despite the fact that most people who may pursue the goals I have uh, are extroverts. I think that's a myth that in order to be an accomplished and quote unquote good leader, you have to be an extrovert. But at the same time, to be a leader, there are extroverted things that you need to do, behaviors that you need to have in order to accomplish your goals. And I think that's what you're saying is, how do I make sure that I stretch myself to do those things so I can get those things done? Absolutely. At the end of the day, it would be a tragedy if I had things I wanted to do. And the reason that I couldn't or didn't do them was because of one thing that held me back that I was unable to address. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, absolutely. How does your experience being a woman, how has it prepared you for this time of leadership? What challenges have you faced uh, in being a woman as a leader? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Hmm. Wow. That I could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I think a couple of things. One is that the concept of the glass ceiling didn't really hit me until probably in my mid-40s. I'm, okay. 50, I'm 52 years old now. And what I mean is that in medicine, at least, you spend so much time developing, going through training and so forth, that you don't really think about where you can go or some of the necessary steps to get you there once you enter the work world. So in, in some sense, perhaps I was delayed. But uh, I think being aware of the glass ceiling in, in the world has been very it's been very depressing. <laughs> and on the other hand, it makes me mad. So I am determined not to be held back by it, even though I wish I had this insight probably 10 or 15 years ago. I think one lesson perhaps is just because you don't see the ceiling, that doesn't mean it's not there. I, I tried to pass that along to my younger colleagues. Another thing that being a woman has meant for me is, and this has served me well, is the, the need to sort of MacGyver things. I think sometimes you end up in places where women aren't seen commonly. In my most recent experience, I've done a lot of work towards investor relations and, and raising money for a company. And I'll say that in general, that is a very male-dominated field. And it is an odd thing to be the only woman in the room, uh, especially as a gynecologist, where that hasn't been true forever and ever. <laughs> um, so I, I think understanding how to navigate that, how to use that even, not use it in a sense of accentuating uh, femininity or any of that sort of thing, but using it in the sense of accentuating your opportunity to provide a different perspective has been really a, a challenge for me. I, I, I am not a sports fan. I don't talk about football. There are lots of ways in which the small talk and the sorts of cajoling that's sometimes used in those contexts is, is not easy for me. And so I have to think about other things. And, and it's been a good challenge for me to understand as a woman in this context with divergent interests and, and as an odd duck, if you will, in the room, how do I manage that? What do I do? That's been helpful to, to think through and to work on. So the MacGyvering of the situations that you find yourself in, it's almost like you've taken a step back and, and said to yourself, okay, I'm on like an adventure, or this is like a spy project or you know, something <laughs> where it's, okay, this is a problem to be solved. And I have to figure out what tools I need in order to solve it or what disguises I need in order to get through it. And so it's almost like you've taken it on as like, this isn't personal. Like it just so happens that I'm the only woman in the room, maybe the only doctor uh, in front of an investor committee. And so how do I communicate and, and convince them to give us money? So you're not taking it personally, you're seeing it as a situation to, to figure out. 
Is that right. true? I think that's right. And, and in some ways, being able to step outside of yourself and outside of the situation really is required. Because I think in, in any mm-hmm. place where you're interacting, any place you put yourself, uh, there's lots of emotion. There's lots of yourself on the line. And, and lots of risk involved in whatever, you know, conversation you're having or experience you're having or thing you're pursuing. And so stepping outside of that, I think if you can cultivate that as a skill set, really, is a better way to understand what's going on. And it's a perpetual learning process. That last yeah. didn't go, how am I going to deconstruct it? How am I going to understand what I could have done better there, what I should have said, um, mm-hmm. what I might have said, and, and mm-hmm. how to try it the next time around? There's lots of learning opportunities. And if I see everything as a personal thing where I'm engaged in a situation and it doesn't work and I'm very frustrated and so forth, I have trouble moving forward. But if I step back and see this as a bit of an experiment, what's going to work here? Then I do better. And that's both in problem solving and also in the interpersonal realm. It adds to what we were talking about before around this whole idea of having an internal compass. What new information do I now have that will help me in the next situation? That's right. The other thing there is that in order to do that really well, I have to reserve part of myself for something else. I can't have it be that my ego or my own sense of self-worth is on the line with every single interaction. I have to have some reserve, some way of understanding myself that's apart from the experience of the moment. Yes, absolutely. I liked what you were saying about the glass ceiling and not being so aware of it earlier in your career, being aware of it later. And you said something about wishing that you had known about it earlier and and you're talking to other younger colleagues about it. How would it have helped you if you would have known that it was real, that glass ceiling, and that eventually you were going to touch it or reach it? Hmm. Part of my perspective on the glass ceiling is that much of it has to do with networking. Okay. And, And what I mean is that if you look at, oh boy, almost anything, corporate boards, executive teams, advisors, consultants, all of those things have to do with whatever sort of history you have with someone and what their perspective is on your work and and your value. Mm -hmm. And and I think that it is inevitably true that most of those tend towards, quote, old boys networks. And those are hard to break into at my age, perhaps, but also maybe at any age. And I think that women in general could do well to develop networks of their own and to push each other towards development and to promote each other. Also to figure out how to, and I'll say this with a caveat, based on their skill set and abilities, incorporate themselves into the boys' network as much as possible. Women are never going to get promoted unless they get called on (laughs) into the C-suite, into the boardroom. And I think the people calling on them are either going to be men who've been in those roles historically or women who find themselves in those roles and are now in a position to promote women around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I, I think that the networking piece of what's involved in that is something I didn't know about 15 years ago. I just assumed that my own uh, skill set and giftedness mm-hmm. would carry me through. And, and that's just right. simply not the case. It's probably helpful, maybe even refreshing for women to hear you say that, because in some ways, and, and not just for women, but also people of color and other folks it's if you can just be good enough, there'll be recognition. And I think what you're saying is even if you are good enough, sometimes that doesn't happen because of the glass ceiling, because of the networks or entrenched habits and and culture and inequities that are ingrained around us. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
That was really insightful. So let's go another layer. Mandy, you are also a lesbian. How has that shaped your leadership? How has being a lesbian maybe helped you? How has it gotten the way? How has that influenced you as a leader? Maybe that there are two sides to the coin. I do think that being a lesbian has um, given me something about myself that I don't want to automatically put out there in every situation. Mm -hmm. And that's an odd thing to say in the sense that most heterosexual people don't ever think about that. You sit in boardrooms and people talk about their wife or their husband, rarely because there aren't that many women, mm-hmm. and they don't think twice about sharing what happened with them over the weekend, about their kids and those sorts of things. And I am forever conscious of the fact that for me to share those same things would be potentially an event. <laughs> I am, <laughs> I'm happy to live in Boston and I feel much more comfortable here than in other places in the country. But I am continuously conscious of that. I would say that's a negative in the sense that it's always, it's almost a little paralyzing to me sometimes because I can't just converse. (laughs) I -hmm. have to work at it a little bit so that I can figure out in some ways how to obscure anything that I might say such that it doesn't draw attention to myself. I say that because I think I have a fear or a discomfort that I will encounter someone who might be willing to invest millions in our company, except that they object to me. And so I'm not really willing to do that to my company or myself. On the other hand, in, in, in that context, it's very obvious that you're, you're really a rare <laughs> person. So that's a negative. On the yeah. other hand, it's a positive in that we've talked a lot in this conversation about being able to step back and to observe a situation. And I mm-hmm. think that it's probably true that to some extent, my ability to step back and observe a situation is because, better or worse, part of being gay is really figuring out where you're safe and where you're not. And so that's yeah. given me the ability to stand in a situation and think, what's going on here? How am I reading this room, both in terms of what I can say about myself easily, but in in all the other ways that we've discussed today? That's right. Thanks for sharing that. It's interesting how some of these themes are coming together around the internal compass, maybe also just becoming older, having experience, becoming more mature. You become more and more comfortable with yourself and who you are. And I almost feel, even though you haven't said that outright, it sounds like that's what has evolved for you both as a person and as a leader and taking steps to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm good at and feeling really comfortable exercising that. Yes, I think that's true. Another story of my uh, medical training, I was in the operating room with a senior surgeon and he was really trying hard to make me feel bad (laughs) about my skills as I was uh, sewing closed an incision. And I finished it up and I walked out of the room and and, um, someone looked at me and said, you look like you're mad. And I said, yes. I said, I wanted to apologize so many times during that uh, surgery when he was making me feel bad, but I decided that I was only going to apologize if I had done something wrong. <laughs> wow. Um, and and I was not very confident. That was deeply upsetting to me at that point. And I went home and really did some soul searching about my skills as a surgeon. But I think that the beginnings of that as a way to force me to look inside myself uh, and understand myself. Really, that's been the theme of growing up uh, into the roles that I've chosen and maturing as I've grown a little older. That's a great story. I'm sure you feel confident in your surgery skills right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to say that. I haven't operated in a while, actually, because I've been too busy being chief medical officer, but I do love it. (laughs) 
I know that you do love it. And and that's what's so interesting about who you are, Mandy, is that you have so many different skills and so many aspects and, and facets of who you are. And to share that with the world is super exciting. And I can't wait to see how it ends up evolving in your life. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation. This was a lot of fun. And, and I feel like I actually learned some things about you that I didn't know. And we've known each other for a pretty long time. <laughs> that's, that's, that'd be quite a challenge. <laughs> I know, exactly. So Mandy Pulley, Thank you so much. And um, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Great. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mandy Pulliam, the Chief Medical Officer of Renovia.com. To learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness, check out my website at www.renovia.com. WinnieDeSilva.com, or you can email me at Winnie at Winifred.org. I'd also love to connect with you on LinkedIn. Reach out and tell me what was helpful about today's episode, or tell me about any other suggestions you have for my show. I look forward to sharing another transformative conversation with you next week.